You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 108. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Hi, everyone. Hello, everyone. Guess what? You have reached another Local Maximum. I am going solo today. And as you know, I've been talking a lot about probability. What is probability? What's a good way to think about it, to use probability practically, and to use it to help yourself make decisions. We don't want you to misuse probability, not be confused by it, not be scared by it, just like a car. It can help you get from point A to point B, but you don't want to crash it. So after last week's discussion with Bob Murphy in episode 107, I decided to give you my uh, definition of probability. Admittedly, I updated that definition a little bit, a little bit after that discussion. Uh, I still, you know, have my basic framework in place, which isn't exactly the same as Mises's framework. Of course, it's not the same as maybe a pure Bayesian, but it's maybe, but it's it's very different from from the the frequentists and the. Well, we'll get into all that in a in a little bit. I'll tell you what I think probability really is, and you'll get that commentary in in a few minutes, in the back half of the show. Uh, so in the first half of the show, I just want to go back and kind of close the loop on some of the stories that we've been covering here on The Local Maximum. One is an update from the story in episode 104. We spoke about privacy on the internet, and I wanted to make an important point, something that you might want to know about Uh, the stuff, the photos that you put in the cloud. Maybe it's your photos, maybe it's your videos, maybe it's something completely different. In a story we covered uh, recently, a bug caused some people to get other people's videos from Google Photos. Yeah, it's called Google Photos, but you you have videos on Google Photos. So uh, a bug caused some people who downloaded their entire stash, you could do that, to receive other people's videos. Now the bug it looks like, was random. Very few people had some of their videos sent to random strangers. But as of yet, there hasn't been any evidence that someone was deeply hurt by this leak. After all, the leaks were random. Most videos are benign, and most people who get strangers' videos are inclined to delete them, or at least not spray them out over the internet. Most people aren't jerks, you know? I, it's it's actually true. It's, it's hard to believe, but most people are not jerks. Um, now, this is contrasted to the iCloud data breach of 2014. That is when celebrities had their private photos leaked. This included photos and videos of a very intimate nature. You can just trust me on this. You don't have to Google it. No, oh, come on. All right. so when you're back, you know, don't have to go. Most of it, uh, most of us don't want that to happen. Most of us don't want our private stuff leaked. Uh, regardless of what it is. So one difference here is that in the Apple case, it was hackers trying to get someone's data, trying to, to, to do this to someone, trying to attack someone, essentially. Whereas in the Google case, it was just a mistake. So sometimes those mistakes can be exploited by black hat hackers, but uh, there's a difference between a mistake and a purposeful hack. Oftentimes, you can 
say with with a mistake you can kind of save yourself you could say hey that was a mistake please delete it or whatever and things will be fine um they are something to worry about but those are two very different situations so another point i wanted to you to understand which i sort of um i understood but i didn't really know it in the context of these stories is is an important concept when thinking about what you put online and that's the concept of end-to-end encryption so what's end-to-end encryption mean that means when you encrypt something you use a password, a key to encrypt it, and that means it's it turns it into gobbledygook. It's a bunch of characters. It's a bunch of uh, it's a bunch of letters, and numbers, and digits, or whatever. And that cannot be turned into your original file. It cannot. You cannot get the photo from it or the original video from because you know if you take every letter and like you know add and jumble the letters like we did in episode four. Uh, oh, of course that's going in the show notes page. Episode four. In episode four. We did a, a substitution cipher where every letter is turned into another letter, and so there's some every so there's some permutation of letters, and I was able to hack that pretty quickly. When you have real encryption, industrial grade encryption, that can't be hacked or that can't be uh, decoded. So um, what happens is your photo, say will be decoded, it'll be turned into letters and numbers, even your text, and it can't be decoded unless you have the password. And so essentially, the uh, let's say you're uploading that photo from your computer, uh, the photo is uh, decrypted on your computer, it's uploaded to the cloud, then you download it from the cloud, it, it's just a bunch of random digits, you can't make any sense of it, then you could use your password, your key to decrypt it, that happens on your computer, and then you see the photo. But if someone else gets that photo from from the server, from the iCloud server, then they can't decrypt it. It's just a bunch of um, random letters and numbers, and they can't tell what the photo is. So, um, okay, so if something isn't end-to-end encrypted, like Google Photos isn't end-to-end encrypted, if somebody gets the photo from uh, Google Photos, then they can see the photo. Um, and and that's uh, that means that if something isn't end-to-end encrypted, if it goes in someone else's server, then you are, um, you're kind of, at, you, you know, you do have that risk of someone somehow hacking into that server. So which of the two services, I already answered you, Apple, Photos and Apple iCloud, I'll just call it Apple Photos for now, and Google Photos, we'll just talk about photos for now, um, so that you get a certain picture, which were end-to-end encryption. So it turns out that Apple is the one that is end-to-end encrypted. So if Google were end-to-end encrypted, that mistake that they made could not have been possible, because it, you know the uh, person on the other end would have had to try to de- would have uh, decrypted their data, uh, the data with their password, and that those videos that came down uh, would not have been able to be decrypted. So now, Apple is end-to-end encrypted. Apple servers can't be hacked to get the photos directly. They need to be decrypted with a password. But I just said before, all those photos and videos were were leaked. So um, what happened? So, so it's interesting because the iCloud hackers did not um, hack into Apple servers with another user, with an anonymous user. They didn't use some parlor trick like SQL injection or something like that and just grab the photos. What did they do? Very simple. They guessed the passwords. And, you know, it's not like I don't think that all these celebrities were using password one, two, three or something dumb like that. Password guessing has gotten very efficient. So if you wrote a password... 
um, especially if it's a few words maybe uh, I, that that kind of go together. Um, it's it and and especially if it has something to do with like your life, if it's the street you live on, if it's some you know. If passwords can be uh, password guessing has gotten very efficient, and so you uh, can use a password manager like One Password that will generate random passwords as you go, which are far better and actually are kind of damn near impossible to guess. But most people don't do that in most situations. I'm moving over to that now. So hopefully. In the 2020s, in this decade, this type of thing will be made kind of mandatory with good user interface because, you know, hey, passwords are hard to deal with. You can't memorize 30 passwords. Nobody does that. So really, you need a password manager. Um, and, you know, end-to-end -end encryption is great, but you need to have end-to-end -end encryption and you need to have solid password and key management to be secure. And that would have solved the problems for both, both Google and Apple. So that's an important aspect of the situation that I think uh, the average person should know and not just security expert. I'm not a security expert. It's just, you know, hey, I'm learning about this stuff too, and I'm glad that, uh, glad that I figured that out. Now, in episode 106, we noticed that a series of articles came out about Venezuela, uh, in the New York Times. I hate to caricature the articles, but they gave a sense of, hey, socialism is over and people are better now uh, because there's a mixed economy. But really uh, what it was saying was that Maduro in Venezuela was allowing foreign investment and he gave some people in Caracas, it seemed like it was uh, you know, all in the capital. He gave some people a break. That gave some people a break. And I, I titled the episode 1% Free because it's still a totalitarian socialist regime that may have given themselves a lifeline by allowing some foreign investment. But ultimately, the characterization of things getting significantly better is falling way off the mark. So now we see a series of articles going the other way. They're talking about how bad it's getting or uh, more accurately, how bad it's staying in Venezuela because... According to the UN Food Program, which did a study in Venezuela, one in three Venezuelans are facing hunger. Uh, this is a study, again, that they conducted inside the country. Uh, somehow they got permission to do that, which is, which is rare for, for uh, the authorities there to allow them to do that. Uh, but it does not look good. And uh, Maduro, President Maduro of Venezuela, he blamed Trump for this. It's the economic sanctions, they say. I think a lot of people here in the U.S. will say it's the economic sanctions. Um, not saying they didn't hurt, but this trend in Venezuela predates the sanctions. Uh, it predates Trump's term in office. Don't forget that things were really bad there in 2016 as well. So I have to conclude that it's the socialist policies put in place by that government. And so the fact that the media keeps kind of vacillating on this, you know, this week it's bad, last week it's getting better, just shows how easily local facts and anecdotes can be used to kind of draw a larger trend that doesn't exist. Now, I got some good news for those of us living in the United States. We may be scared. Some people might scare us that say we're, we're going to get Venezuela, we're, our country's going to turn into Venezuela. We're not going to turn into Venezuela, or we're not going to have what happened to Venezuela happen here. We're not going to have the totalitarian socialist policies implemented by that state implemented here in the United States. Even if Bernie Sanders gets elected, which is what the, you know, which is what people say, there's a very small chance of him getting his proposal through Congress. But even, even then, even if he does get, have some legislative success, the nationalization of whole industries just isn't going to happen. 
So I don't know if you've been following the Democratic primary debates or not, the presidential debates. They've gotten a lot more. They were very boring. First they were sad, then they were boring. Um, But they've gotten a lot more fun recently. I think that's because a couple things, because the elections are actually happening. We're closer to the end, and we've got Bloomberg in there. It was kind of funny. People said he did really, really bad in the first debate, and he he knew that. So I love how he came back in the second debate, and he's like, wow, I'm surprised you all came back after I wiped the floor with you last time. So uh, now... Uh, like today, as we speak, all of these candidates are dropping like flies, and we're going to start to see how the election of 2020 shapes up. Amy Klobuchar is out just today. Pete Buttigieg out yesterday as I was driving home uh, from, a, from a trip to Vermont. I was actually in Vermont this weekend skiing with Aaron, my co-host, um, and also his wife and his little kids. That was a lot of fun. Uh, and so getting the news uh, news there, but... Um, no, it was it was just a it was a fun trip. I came back last night, and so yeah, this is coming out Monday. What is it, February second? This is um, yeah, and I'm actually recording this right before it goes out. So hopefully, I'm not going to get it out by seven, but maybe I'll get it out by seven thirty. Um, okay, so where was I? oh right? All the all the candidates starting to drop out. Amy Klobuchar dropped out. Pete Buttigieg dropped out. Tom Steyer dropped out. Elizabeth Warren somehow still in. I don't know why, but it looks like it's kind of narrowing to all of these like old white guys. There's uh, you know socialist Bernie Sanders, establishment Joe Biden, and billionaire Michael Bloomberg. All the B's: Bernie, Biden, Bloomberg, Buttigieg. Another B. There are a lot of B's in this one. I don't know if that's statistically significant. Um, so <laughs> I shouldn't make jokes like that in the statistical podcast. But um, well, I. I don't know what to make of it. Probably a random fluke. So one thing that happened in the first debate with Bloomberg that I think went over a lot of people's heads that I want to point to was uh, Bernie Sanders has a proposal, and uh, Warren Elizabeth Warren has a similar proposal, that he wants nearly half, I think that was like something like 45% of corporate boards to represent the interests of the employees above the shareholders. So boards today, they have a fiduciary interest to the shareholders. In other words, if me, if you and me and a bunch of people get together and start a company and we have a board of directors for that company, that board of directors works for us. They have to try to make the company as valuable as possible for us. They can't, you know, um, now they can, in, in the interest of doing that, they should treat their employees well. They should do some goodwill for the, um, for the community that the corporation um, works uh, uh, works in, uh, but you know, goodwill can be very valuable for a corporation's brand. But uh, what they can't do is they can't say, "Let's siphon money from the shareholders and give it to other interests." And so uh, that's what they're trying to do. Bloomberg's response was to say, "We're not going to give up on capitalism. Other countries tried that. It's called communism, and it just doesn't work." And the audience booed him. I think part of the audience wants communism. Uh, Part of the audience wants socialism and rejects the use of the harsher-sounding word, communism. Um, But I think a lot of the audience thought it was, you know, it was unfair to call that communism because it's just, uh, it's just a very benign-sounding policy. So that's the way this thing is going to be sold. Even though I'm pretty sure that Bernie does want socialism, it's going to be sold as capitalism plus. Hey, we'll just have a few people. On the corporate boards, they'll be there to protect the interest of you, the employee. How bad could that be? That sounds reasonable. 
Well, I think Bloomberg is 100% right here. It doesn't mean if we get that policy passed where all of a sudden the communist regime and everything falls apart, but it will be quite destructive. It is dismantling capitalism. Make no mistake, these new board members aren't going to be just you know friendly faces there making sure that someone is looking out for you in the board meeting. What incentive do they have to do that? What They won't get paid more to do that. No, their job will be to try to extract as much value from the corporation as possible to either union interests, political interests, these will be political employees, they will be politicians, or kind of a favored group of employees that most likely will not include you. Uh, it probably won't include, uh, it probably won't include kind of engineers or, or people who are knowledge workers. So how do I know this? Uh, simple game theory, it can't end up any other way. The purpose of corporate governance is to make good, efficient uses of the resources they own. Some of them do well, some of them don't do well. But without this, resources aren't put to their most productive use, and everything starts to get lower quality, more expensive, less available. Uh, again, some boards are good at this, some aren't. The ones that aren't will go out of business eventually or will be replaced by upstarts. Some businesses do great by their employees. Some don't. Uh, try to work at places that do. But to say, now it's open season on some of your resources to be siphoned off to other ends, well, now it becomes a successful business model to figure out how to siphon off resources from other corporations and kind of do a slow motion plunder of capitalism is essentially what this boils down to. And a lot of, I think that went over a lot of people's heads. The policy, it sounds so benign. It's supported by Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, too. And that's the reason they want to get it passed versus like, you know, nationalizing industries, which is just not going to be popular. Uh, so over the years, uh, all of these publications speak highly of it. You have articles in the New York Times. You even, I found an article in Bloomberg.com that supports this policy. And they don't really get much responses. It's like there are a lot of kind of left of center think tanks that kind of put this out. All of them articles look the same. It's like, hey, get with the program. It's what the sophisticated Europeans do. And if you don't like it, you're a dumb, ignorant American. The, the, they have kind of a nice sounding name for it. It's called co-determination. We're just, we just want co-determination. Come on, how bad could that be? Um, they also like this policy because it's done in Germany. And Germany right now, it seems like a nice place, at least in 2020 it does. But look, every country has some bad policies. We have some bad policies. Uh, Germany has some bad policies. Germany has some good policies that we don't have and vice versa. So there's just no causal link there. It's made up. Uh, there have been some scandals associated with these German mixed boards that are kind of swept under the rug. I need to learn a little bit more of that, but they're, they're not kind of dealt with. And some countries where this has happened, there's kind of a more obvious disaster, like, you know, communist Yugoslavia and things like that. So it's kind of like a tax. Look, I don't expect a communist takeover if we raise taxes 30%. Maybe, uh, maybe it could hurt the economy, but you can point to some places where those tax rates, rates uh, that where those places are not so bad, but that doesn't mean it's a good policy. There's no causal link there. So what do you think about co-determination? Localmaxradio at gmail.com for your input. Okay, now let's get to my definition of probability. What is probability and are there different types? I got a little tongue-tied. I should be really good at answering this question, but I got a little tongue-tied when I spoke to Bob Murphy uh, last week. I got some very good feedback on the discussion, by the way. No one complained about it, only me when I was listening to it. But I know I kind of took it off topic sometimes, and I think he said a few things uh, about the kind of Austrian school of economics and what Mises wrote, and I kind of took it back to 
the stuff I knew because that's kind of where my brain goes. And so, yeah, I'm going to have to work on that to kind of um, uh, to kind of contend with these different ideas. So my definition of first probability. First, I want to tell you what probability is not. It's not data and it's not a property of something. So some philosophers do say that. Some philosophers do say it's a property of something uh, and they do say it's data. But I'm speaking as someone who works with probability. If you have a data set that includes probability values, that's fine. But just realize that that's not raw data. Those probabilities were always calculated from something else or taken from some other data and then calculated with a model. So it's not an inherent property of something. If this coin has a 50% chance of landing on heads, it has nothing to do with the coin itself, as some theories hold, or with a particular flip. Um, in my view, all probability is subjective. That means it differs from person to person or entity to entity. Not, not just people can have probability. And probability is a model of reality, just like any other model. So that doesn't define what it is, but it says what, what category it is. It's a model of reality. Um, and what probability does is it takes other models of reality let's say they're outcomes, let's say they're truths. So say one model is this coin will land on heads. That is a belief that I can hold. And the other is this model will land on tails. That's also a belief I can hold, a belief that I can make my decisions off of and live this as if that's true. So with probability, I can mix those two models together to create another model. It's a mixed strategy. I can say 50% heads, 50% tails, which represents kind of a hedged bet that both realities are possible. And that, so it's not a bet in the terms of I'm putting money on it, but it's a bet in terms of belief. And that I'm valuing their relative likelihood at one to one, equal chances. Maybe some things are two to one. I even think you could have irrational ratios as part of the model, but there's no need because two models can be very close to each other and it's too similar to matter. So rather than using irrational ratios, you're, you could always use rational numbers. Um, now it's subjective because everybody's model of reality is different. Or you can create several models of reality, uh, several different probabilistic models, and they're all they're all yours, but they're all different. Maybe there's one that you're going to base your um, you know base your actions off of, but that's up to you. Uh, you know, it, models are models exist; they're real uh, models of the world, and um, probability is simply one of them. So if you tell me that there's a ninety percent chance of rain tomorrow. Um, I can't really tell if that's your, if that's what you really believe. Um, and also, I don't know automatically how good you are coming up with that number, even if I think that's what you really believe. I don't know if you're making up the number uh, just because you feel that way on a whim. You're trusting your gut, which maybe isn't very good. Or maybe you're a really great weather analyst. I can only infer that afterwards. Um, but don't worry so much about other people's probabilities. You can maybe use other people's probabilities if you want to try to figure out how they would act in certain circumstances, try to model them, um, talk about human action. And you could also use people's reported probabilities to influence your own. Like if the weatherman says there's a 90% chance of rain, maybe that will affect your mental model as to what the percent chance of rain is. Um, in fact, I heard that weathermen kind of increase the percent chance of rain um, that they say because they get in a lot more trouble if they say there's not rain and there is, ver vice versa. So uh, maybe you shouldn't just take the weatherman at, uh, at, at their word, but you should kind of subtract 10% from it or something like that. Or, you know, take a, you know, 
um, you know, take take eighty percent of it. I don't know. Um, so probabilistic, like think so. So you should take you should care more about your probabilities than other people's probabilities. Just like you should care about what you believe is true, you don't necessarily know what other people believe is true. You care about it, but you can't always you you can't. Uh, you can't control it or tell what it is as much as you can do for yourself. So probabilistic-like thinking is also another thing I have to define because it's kind of like probability, but it's not. I define that as some kind of making up of... You, you, that's sort of what everybody does where you have different possibilities and you sort of make up a number, but it's really just an emotion that you attach to a situation and then you use those emotions to make decisions. It works consciously and subconsciously. It works because it is a, um, it, uh, it estimates, not estimates, it, um, it comes close to what a probabilistic model would do, um, but probability is what you get when you kind of systematize this, and you turn them into numbers, and you make sure that it's consistent and all that. So, uh, yes, a model can exist without a person. Hey, here's a model of reality that I don't believe, but it's still in the subjective camp because you can choose which model to believe in and which model to base your decisions off of. So now we talked last week about the difference between an ordinal and cardinal number. So you can't say that, you know, person A is a 30% better friend than person B. It's hard to kind of quantify that. But probability, I would argue, is not really ordinal. Um, yes, you say that uh, this thing is more likely than an another, but it's a magnitude. You, um, you can put a number on it. And more precisely, it's a relative magnitude. So probability tells me how much more likely I think one event is than another. So for example, if I say, that Bernie Sanders has a 90% chance to win the nomination in California tomorrow. The, the election in the, uh, the, there's Super Tuesday tomorrow, the election in one of the states is California. Let's say I, I, he has a 90% chance to win. It means that my expectation of Bernie winning is nine times as high as my expectation of Bernie not winning. So it's 90% to 10%. So that's tomorrow's election. There's one every day now, American election year. Awesome. So... It's a comparison between two or more outcomes, and there are always other outcomes you might not be taking into account, but that's always true with any model of truth. So suppose that I have a list of statements that I think are true. Um, we're not talking probability now. Then I go around one day and I discover a contradiction. Maybe one of them can't be true, or maybe it's not even a contradiction. Maybe I, just one of these statements isn't working for me uh, anymore. Something doesn't smell right, so I need to replace it with another truth. But I could also, instead of replacing it with a truth, which is, which is something people do, I could also replace it with a probabilistic model of several possible truths because that's also a model. That could be a smart thing to do. And then I can go updating my probabilities through Bayes' rule, but note, that this is still taking place on top of the framework of this is my list of true statements. So you kind of have to start with that. And it's possible that the entire probabilistic model that you, you've built could have to be thrown away at some point um, if, an, if, for example, if an, an outcome that you had accounted for is occurring. Or let's say that your Bayesian prior, uh, you, you placed 0% of the weight on one particular uh, on, on one particular outcome, 
and it turns out that you know that outcome isn't true, then you might have to throw out the whole probabilistic statement and replace it with something else, maybe something broader. Uh, maybe you replace it with, with something completely different. Um, but it's less likely that you'll have to do that if you use a probabilistic model than if you just go with a single truth. And so oftentimes that probabilistic model is... Uh, sort of better to keep in your head. Sometimes it's too expensive to keep in your head. And if you have a probabilistic model in your head where it's like 99.99999% that something is true, you might want to just say, hey, uh, I'm just going to assume this is true and move on because uh, probabilistic models are more information intensive and Bayesian updating is more information expensive. So I think in the historical context we were talking about last week, um, where, where does probability not make sense? When does a number that you give out not make sense for probability? So I thought about that, and I think it doesn't make sense to make a statement like, Napoleon actually had a 15% chance of being successful in his Russian invasion. That makes no sense. Or FDR had a 60% chance of winning in 1932, because those events already happened. So it makes no sense to take a subjective probabilistic view of something that you already know is true or false. You know that FDR did win in 1932. And that's sort of why Laplace kind of gives this um, statement. So Laplace, who developed, um, uh, who developed Bayesian probability, also you know, made a statement who seemed to, seeming to suggest that um, there is no probability uh, if you know everything. So we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. Um, what, what's the quote? Given for one instant an intelligence which could comprehend all the forces which by nature is animated and the respective situation of the beings who compose it, an intelligence sufficiently vast to submit these data to analysis, it would embrace in the same formula the movements of the greatest bodies of the universe and those of the lightest atoms. For it, nothing would be uncertain, and the future as the past would be present to its eyes. Uh, and so essentially what he's saying is there's no subjective probability there because you already know the answer. So these historical um, tidbits, like FDR had a 60% chance of winning in 1932, don't make any sense, but you can get around this. You can get around this by qualifying it. You could say FDR had a 60% chance of winning according to this analyst at the time. I think according to the Huffington Post, Hillary Clinton had a 95% chance of winning the 2016 election the day before. Um, and you could even use counterfactuals with that. And you don't even have to use an analyst at the time. You could say, according to this model I'm using. So those make sense, but you do have to qualify it. Now, there is a role. I'm not completely throwing out objective probability or frequentist probability, and not an insignificant role for frequentists or objective probability in my way of thinking. It's just a special case. Uh, objective probability is a special case of subjective probability. So objective probability occurs when the information available is agreed upon by everyone, and there's kind of a symmetry between the different possible outcomes. So I have no reason, for example, to favor the sides of a die or raffle tickets. And so every, you can argue logically that every right-thinking person should agree on what the probability is using basic principles. That's when it becomes objective. And so we can determine whether we can upgrade a subjective probability to an objective probability um, given, the, uh, given the circumstances, but you usually can't do that. Um, and this is related to kind of the class probability that Mises spoke of, where you kind of, those are not necessarily ob ob 
completely objective, but these are cases where you run an experiment, you think that the individual cases on this experiment are completely analogous, so it's properly controlled. So now, and you have a large data set, uh, large enough to, um, to large enough, I, mean, I know that's kind of fuzzy, but now you can make an inference of a probability, like what percentage of people are left-handed in New York City if you could kind of randomly, uh, randomly select people properly and you think you did the random selection, and then you have, um, and th then you've gathered enough data. Again, with Bayesian priors, there's little wiggle room here. But with repeated controlled experiment, uh, an objective frequentist probability will emerge. And again, probabilities are not—they're um, not infinite precision, right? So it doesn't 60% and 60.0000, like let's say 100 zeros, one percent, uh, doesn't make a lot of practical difference. And so we can just kind of pick a number that everyone agrees on objectively. So I'm going to talk to Professor Adam Kapelner about experiment theory in a few weeks. Uh, it could be next week. I think it's, it'll probably be the week after. And we're going to learn a lot about that, so tune in for that. Um, I've got a lot of fun stuff coming up. I might have something exciting where I get some designers at Foursquare to do a design panel. I know we've been talking statistics all this time. We're a little tired of all the probability stuff. Maybe we need a little break. And so I want to talk to some designers at Foursquare. Foursquare has the best designers. And so I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, okay. Hope you enjoy it. So definitely tune in for that. Tune in for Adam Kapelner. Maybe I'll try to do another one with Aaron. One that I want to do with Aaron is how risk averse should you be because or how should you think about risk because a lot of the models that we're given are this is what you do if you're risk averse this is what you do if you're risk loving but they don't say they, they kind of take that as given as to what you know given the type of person you are and that's just not satisfying so we want to see what we could say about that okay hope you enjoyed the show today lots of great tidbits in here hope you learned something i hope i provoked you maybe a little bit localmaxradio at gmail.com to tell me your thoughts. I do read them all, uh, and I respond, I think, to them all. I might miss one or two, but I respond to them all. And some of them I even talk about on the show, as people know who have, who have messaged me. So have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel, feel the power.